Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. This is a really exciting interview today. I have Kathy Wood, Clay Gardner from Titan to talk about ARK Invest. This was actually an interview that I did at Fintwit Summit. So this is only a portion of the interview. If you want to watch the whole thing, I'll link it below. This is just a portion of it. Go watch the whole thing at Fintwit Summit. But this will be some highlights of the interview, some key takeaways here. Of course, nothing mentioned here is investment advice. ARK is getting into private investing with Titan. They're teaming up to help people get access to private markets, which have historically been very, very gatekept. It's an interesting realm to start wading into, especially if you think about how companies are funded, which is primarily through VC, right? And traditionally, VC has a bunch of issues with a lot of issues around pattern matching, around choosing a certain type of founder. There's also thematics in VC like AI right now, crypto previously, that everyone begins pouring into. So we've had easy money for so many years years. VCs highly benefited from that and now we don't have the FOMO evaluation. But yeah, hopefully you enjoy the interview and leave your thoughts, comments, questions below. There's a really fine line between opportunity and reality, right? So what does democratizing access mean here, especially in the context of the ARC Venture Fund? What does democratizing VC mean to us? It's an extension of something that we've already done uh, in the public space. We've democratized our research, certainly. We are opening up innovation in the public equity markets originally for a client base and educating them about that innovation. VC was a natural extension for us. And we have an unbelievable partner in, in Titan because they ran with this ball when we, we came to them and we were talking about, we, we need to do this a little differently. We can't do this the way traditional venture capital has. Our clients keep coming to us and telling us they're not accredited. They don't meet the asset threshold or the income threshold. And they want to know why they can't have access and could we help them? And so we started looking around for a vehicle to do this. And we found an interval fund. It's a 40 act fund, which is SEC related all of our funds are. And because we are not going to charge a carry, we are allowed to let both accredited and unaccredited uh, investors access to private companies. What opening access means to us is asset classes, types of products, historically only available to institutions and high net worth individuals can be available to, to, to non high net worth individuals. So retail investors, and that means a few things, right? Tangibly reducing the level of minimums associated with getting into some of these products. Um, navigating the regulatory landscape around accreditation. For example, I know a lot of people that make over the 200K annual income that are uh, actually not great investors and have access to startups and have, have not done very well. And I know a lot of engineers, consultants, folks that, that are not quite accredited that are actually quite savvy. So I think a lot of the accreditation rules will evolve over time. But insofar as they exist for quite some time, I think Kathy touched on, we've, we landed on a novel concept that allows retail investors to get access to alternatives like, like venture in, in, a, in a relatively liquid way compared to the, the typical private venture world. The other thing I'd say about democratization is, is the educational component. Um, this interval fund concept has actually been around for, for decades. The reason not many people have leveraged it to, to be able to make products accessible to retail is it's really confusing. Um, from repurchase and redemption windows to even the fee structure, which I'm sure we'll get into, quite clunky and confusing on antiquated platforms, even some of the largest brokerages. So a lot of the products that we're talking about democratizing and bringing retail access to, the distribution platform will need to be geared and built almost in a bespoke way so that people know what are they getting into? Is this suitable for me? Why or why not? And then post the initial investment experience, how can I get to know the companies? It's not a 
transaction, but it's a relationship with Kathy and their team and taking the investor along for the ride and understanding the thesis and the research as opposed to a point in time transaction. I think where it touches reality is there's a regulatory landscape, there's an operational landscape, there's intermediaries. You have to understand what's allowed, what's not allowed, what's right for investors, what's not right, and be able to navigate that. I think many people are very surprised at the minimum, $500. We can have daily inflows and they actually can get liquidity as well, which you can't get in a, a traditional venture fund. So once a quarter, up to 5% of our net asset value can exit the fund. What we've learned is that many institutions and family offices cannot get access to the, the venture firms and their companies the way we are beginning to. And one of the reasons for that the reasons this is happening, Clay touched on it a bit, we're out there educating the public on these new companies. We're raising their visibility in the marketplace and letting people know how exciting these new ideas are. And that's good for VCs. Another very good thing for these companies is it helps with talent acquisition. You know, if you raise the profile of a company and it seems very exciting, then more people are probably going to be interested in working for it. Just returning to the perspective of maybe the retail investor, right? So investing $500, getting access. There's also a pretty fine, thin line between access and fiduciary responsibility, right? So how do you sort of think about balancing this access for people to be able to get into VC funds? And then also what most investors are seeking, which is returns. How do you sort of think of explaining sort of the return structure to the average retail investor in that regard? The return profile, again, this is similar to our public funds, but the return expectation is higher. We have a five-year investment time horizon generally. I shouldn't say generally, always five years plus. The return expectation is somewhere in the 20 to 25% per year range. Now, for our ETFs in the public equity markets, these are more mature companies, that number is 15%. So again, this is just uh, filling out uh, you know, a space that is where we should rightly be because we are so focused, exclusively focused on disruptive innovation. We're the distributor for, for the ARC Fund and we're the platform. As part of that onboarding experience, there's a few things to keep in mind. One is someone's personal circumstances, right? Whether it's the net worth, income, their tolerance for volatility, their desire for liquidity or their comfort with illiquidity, all of those inputs can then map to an asset class that could or could not be right for you, right? And so, you know, the typical investor on the retail side has stocks, bonds, maybe cash. You know, as you think about the alternatives world, what are you getting into? There's more illiquid versus liquid securities, right? There's not mark to market, right? You can say that's a pro, you can also say that's a con. Ultimately, that should map to someone's personal risk tolerance and preferences. And so our job is to make sure that those preferences are captured and that only products that are deemed that are deemed suitable get shown to investors. And that's how you you square, you know, the democratization of opening access of retail with also reality, right? Is I think if you learn anything for, let's say like the crypto world, like the web three world, it's that when you take someone where they don't capture inputs around suitability and they're just putting products in front of people without that in mind, you can get into hairy territory. And so that's, that's how we approach it. Our research is the filter. Really do believe that we have the best research on innovation in the financial services industry. Why? Because we've dedicated ourselves to innovation in both the public and the private markets. And, and now we can take companies from early stage to mega cap, which we think is going to be a real service to our clients, 
but also to the companies. A quick question about sort of the fee structure, and then I want to dive a little bit more into the thematics around innovation. So with things like VCS, we sort of talked about and hit on, there are much longer holding periods, usually with returns not being realized for years until the company ends up going public, usually. How do you sort of make sure that investors understand that? And what is the thinking behind the fee structure, which I'll read it out, a 2.75% management fee, which you do state is better than the normal 2 and 20. So our fee structure, the 2.75% is the relevant number against the 2 and 20. Those other fees, venture capital charges as well. They're embedded. Let's compare the 2.75% where you have the low minimum and you have liquidity against the 2 and 20. If you, if you were to compare a fund with our fee structure versus a 2 and 20, and you kept your, your uh, uh, money in the, each fund, what you would see over five to 10 year period is uh, that the uh, venture capital fund, and, and these would be the top tier where their, their uh, multiple of invested capital is more like 4.5 times that the venture capital fees over that time span would be 40% higher than our fees. So uh, we do think we're providing a service here in that we're comparing against venture capital, not against ETFs, and uh, we're allowing venture you know, access to private companies that just did not exist before with a low minimum and with liquidity as well. We run some math internally as well. And I think even if you were to just assume, you know, the like for like additional expenses of like a traditional VC fund, assume it wasn't equivalent to the whole delta between the management fee and the expense ratio. So if you just take the fully loaded expense ratio ceiling of 4.22%, and like Kathy said, I think it's a 3x over 10 years. So roughly like 11, 12% IRR, you'd need to deliver to basic uh, through the ARC Venture Fund to have it be a better deal for the investor than a two and 20 fund. So a three X over 10 years, it's roughly 11% IRR. And I think over the last 10 years, the median VC IRR has been closer to 15, 16%. The, the, what you need to believe based on the data, obviously past returns are not, <laughs> are not um, uh, you know, illustrative of future. And I'm sure the last decade of returns, the future forward expected returns are gonna look, look a little bit lower for a variety of reasons. But even if you handicap that, the, what you need to believe is that ARC can be an above median VC firm over the next 10 years for the, for the fees to work out um, better than typical. When you think about how innovation is traditionally funded in the VC space, the playing field is pretty unequal, right? Internationally, women historically get much less funding. People of color get much less funding. So how are you all thinking about that? One of the reasons I've been drawn to innovation is actually a great leveler. We have never seen the amount of innovation that is taking place now. There's an absolute explosion of it. The seeds for all of it were planted in the 20 years that ended in the tech and telecom bubble, but the technologies weren't ready for what we're talking about now. AI breakthroughs really didn't start happening until 2012, well after 2000. And even cloud computing didn't happen until AWS, Amazon Web Services, in, in 2006. We're seeing five major innovation platforms, genomic sequencing, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, and blockchain technology. They involve 14 different technologies. And we believe they're moving into exponential growth trajectory. So what we say to our companies 
and to our clients is get on the right side of change. There is so much happening now. It is the great leveler. But if you don't get on the right side of change, you're going to be left in a, a, a disrupted world order. Sure, there are risks in innovation, but there are risks in not being there. And we think those risks are growing uh, by the day. There's a couple of things that we, a couple of dimensions of like the the relatively unequal playing field that we've seen historically in venture. One is demographically, minority founder. It was not not easy at all to raise tight funds for Titan. We got over, I think, 110 no's from every VC firm up and down Sand Hill Road before we got to where we are today. And you know, I think part of the excitement about Arc Venture is like the democratization of investing in venture capital means that more founders will be able to raise funding from legitimate institutions in more non-traditional ways. So instead of flying across the world to go meet with us, the Sequoias or whomever on Sand Hill Road, crossing the language barrier and so forth, there'll be more digital first ways to do it. And there's the Interval Fund product, I think makes the process much more seamless as well. Retail investors can actually participate in those founders' journeys as well at a much earlier stage. And the other thing I would say was just inter- like the, the geographic dispersion of like venture funding, right? I mean, you, there's exceptions over the last decade or so from you know, ByteDance and Klarna and others, but the vast majority of it has been concentrated, like the venture returns have been concentrated, not only in the US, but literally in Silicon Valley in like a few block radius. And so I think one of the silver linings to the pandemic was that you're seeing a lot of that capital formation spread. It is still definitely concentrated, anchored in you know, San Francisco, increasingly Miami and other hubs, but that spreading across across the globe and those sorts of trends will enable that capital hopefully to spread to other places historically underserved. And you know, one example is Chipper Cash, right? Chipper Cash is a an Arc Venture portfolio company in the fund today. You can view it as the cash app of Africa. And, and that's one example of a tailwind and a secular theme that Arc's able to get exposure to. And now retail investors can share in that. So it's a, a win-win for, for multiple angles. To be fair to the current venture capital firms out there, the best of them, they have been really open to what we're doing. And they've invited us in and introduced us to their best companies at the prices at the last round. They want to help change the world a little bit. They understand the flaws, uh, you know, historically, and they love the idea that we can partner with them. It's not just a one-way street. They're just showing us their best companies. No, we're going to showcase them and we're going to introduce uh, the world to the CEOs, the retail base, uh, our base of investors, and we're going to help them recruit talent, tell their story and recruit talent. So it's a bit of a win-win. It's not an us versus them. I would say everyone understands the problem you mentioned, but I think that that we're coming together to do this together. A lot of your market forecasts, Kathy, are really optimistic, which is great. Like optimism is wonderful. But, you know, going back to that point made earlier, like there's a fine line between reality and optimism. How do you sort of think about the physical constraints on some of what you're thinking around innovation, especially lithium, and to the point of having jobs available for people within these venture-backed companies? The labor market is historically tight. So how are you sort of thinking about the physical constraints that are happening? A big part of our research is trying to figure out what is possible. We don't want to be optimistic for optimistic sake. We we center our research on something called Wright's Law, which is a relative of Moore's Law, which people know from the semiconductor space. And it helps us identify how quickly costs a certain uh, uh, associated with different technologies 
are going to fall over time and therefore how much access people are going to have to this new technology as prices come down. But you're right. There are, uh, the rights law is based on unit demand. Are we going to be able to supply this demand? Lithium is probably one of the most prolific minerals out there in the world. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It takes a very long time to build a mine. I think it's three years. But the, uh, I think Tesla has changed the pace of the lithium industry, the lithium mining industry, by basically saying, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to scale. We'll take all you can get. And so they've taken the risk out of a lot from a lot of commodity producers saying, we will take it. We think the electric vehicle market is going to scale so quickly. And even more so now that oil prices have skyrocketed, it's been able to maneuver around shortages. Not only does it by encouraging production, but it also does it by changing chemistries. For example, cobalt, which is mined primarily in the Congo, was critical to battery production. Tesla's moving away from cobalt completely, and is moving away from nickel to lithium iron phosphate, which is much more available. So an innovator has to also be pretty flexible and think about the physical constraints and be realistic about them. And in fact, it's really interesting when I hear Wall Street talking about innovation, they're really coming at it from a negative angle. They're talking about the reasons it would happen. And one of the reasons is that Wall Street and, and a lot of investing has, has become very benchmark sensitive. It's gone passive in a way. And so there's less and less research being done. There's no reason for many analysts to follow stocks because they're not in their benchmarks. Those are the innovation stocks that we follow. And I believe that's why we have the best research. We're very focused on innovation and how likely or not will scale during the next five to 10 years. Social distribution is going to break down barriers that have existed. Distribution has been a big barrier to entry for a lot of funds, to be honest, as you you were saying, Kyla, earlier, non-accredited investors have no shot at uh, venture funds. So Titan is breaking down barriers, and we're grateful for that. One of the goals with the ARC Venture Fund is information access, right? So bringing the retail investor on board. So how do you plan to help founders through maybe our audience that is all of a sudden watching their every move. ARC is a very social company to begin with. And I think Titan will turbocharge us in the investment realm this way. We have uh, 3.3 million among, among us. We have 3.3 million Twitter followers and they're global. As we do more with private companies and expose them to retail investor through the investors through the Titan platform, we're going to be educating them on what we believe are some of the most exciting companies in the world. We've started the fund already with one of the most uh, interesting genomics companies that actually is making progress to identifying cancer in stage one, if you can believe that, including pancreatic cancer. That company is Freenome. It is in the AI space and it is helping companies become up to seven times more efficient and lower cost with their AI models. You know, when it comes to autonomous driving, which is going to be one of the most important AI projects in the world, when it comes to autonomous taxi platforms, Mosaic is going to be critical in uh, making that happen. You've heard of Epic. Um, well, Epic, many people know for Fortnite, uh, but uh, you know we want to help educate that this is more, much more than just Fortnite. It's potentially a completely new social network as the gamers 
go into, I forget what the name of the island is, Party Royale or whatever, and socialize with, with one another. And it also has a game engine, which Tesla just signed up for, for simulation for autonomous driving. So what we hope to do is educate our investors about not only these incredible companies that are going to make the new world work, but show how the technologies that are evolving today are converging with one another. Who could have imagined that a gaming company would help Tesla with its autonomous taxi platform project? That's pretty mind-blowing. And so we want to, you know, I'm sure gamers are very interested in that. They love the company. It's hard to get access to Epic. We have it and we can appreciate more what Epic is doing because we're working on the research uh, behind those very, very difficult problems to solve. Innovation solves problems. I always say that. And so we want to we want to showcase these companies as problem solvers and as companies who are going to change the world and really make it a better place. I think you mentioned like transparency and like, you know, founders and how, how does this all coalesce? What's interesting, I've, I've already had a number of founders, um, for, for, I mean, some incredibly successful businesses from series A to series D already reaching out, asking how they can get in touch with the art team. If I put myself in their shoes and, and I have put myself in their shoes and ask why, there's a few value props, I think, for them in, in the transparency. One, they have an, a, a platform, like a social platform to be able to tell their story in, in, in a way. And that obviously doesn't, they, they ultimately have domain over information rights and what they want to share with the public, but just a platform to be able to align themselves with certain investors like Arc Venture and, and tell their story. Another angle is it, another value prop for them is the ability for folks in their networks to participate in their companies without having to be a direct investor. So, you know, if your company is Series B company, you want to have an extension round or, or help allow Arc Venture to come in and be a part of that round, they now have a public, you know, or through Titan, a fund platform through which their employees, their uh, their families, their friends, those that, who have wanted to back the company, but maybe the round was closed already or they did, couldn't meet the minimum check size, 10, 20K, whatever the angel check is, now have a platform through which they can get invested in a piece of that business. So there's a bunch of interesting value props and it's been interesting even just the first week of launch hearing some of those inbounds from, from entrepreneurs. Have you all always felt this hopeful about the future and like where does that optimism to you know build companies, to invest in companies sort of stem from for both of you? I mean, the optimism for me has just been a about feeling a particular passion and, and deep understanding of the problem space. I used to work in private and public markets. I used to hodgepodge together my own PA when I wasn't running, working at the funds. I, I come from a place, you know, I was the only person in my friend network from my high school to work in finance, to work in New York and Wall Street. I was considered the person they go to for investment advice. And obviously I would say, look, it's not investment advice, but here's interesting sectors or areas that I dabble in and was effectively helping guide them on the side. Notice that there's a deep gap being unfilled in the demand for active management by experts. And that could mean experts investing in some passive offerings or active offerings, but just a deep sense of the problem space of a lot of people don't have the expertise to do it themselves and may not have a smart friend or colleague or someone who can assist them. And they certainly may not have millions of dollars for a wealth manager. The need for active wealth management, or at least the, the demand for it, hit particularly close to home. So that, that it was like the, the company was founded on a what we think is a massive problem and a really a unique, a really clear sense of what the solution could be. It's obviously blossomed a bunch since we founded the company and launched in 2018. And I think we're literally at the tipping point right now, especially with Arc Venture. But like all great companies, I think are founded on, on massive problems that seem obvious in hindsight. But even today, I think this is quite a contrarian idea. A lot of the things we're saying today may seem common sense, but I think there's still a lot of skeptics. So yeah, that's ultimately what makes a market and what we're excited about. So. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll echo, and I say all the time, innovation solves problems. Innovation solves problems. And we have a lot of problems. And actually, innovation gains more traction during tough times because consumers and businesses, if they're afraid, they're willing to change the way they behave. There's a lot of inertia in human behavior, and they're willing to change. In terms of an unmet need, that's why I founded ARC. I saw the traditional asset management world focused on public equities going passive. And at the same time, we saw this explosion of innovation. You know, the seeds were planted a long time ago. The technologies are ready now. The costs are low enough. It's just so ironic that because of what happened in the tech and telecom bust, people won't go near a lot of innovation these days. That's a good thing. That's a good thing from a portfolio manager's point of view. I know... I know we're in, we are not in a hype phase, but I do feel the un, unmet need that we are filling is innovation as a special asset category because benchmarks and passive are all based on backward looking indicators. The stocks in those portfolios are there because of their past success. If we're right, and these five major platforms, which involve 14 different technologies, are going to disturb, if not destroy, the traditional world order. If we are right, then it is imperative that investors have, I would say, a very good allocation to innovation, however one wants to define it, to innovation so that they're looking at the future and you know, riding on the coattails or riding the coattails of these new technologies and these exponential growth trajectories that we going to, that we believe are going to be transformative for the world. One quick question about sort of the current state of affairs, the macroeconomy at large. Um, you know, the Fed has been raising rates in order to battle inflation, and that has, as you said, sort of cap- catapulted us into almost a different economic regime. So, how do you all sort of think about reconciling, you know, the last ten years, which have been, you know, pretty easy money, a, a relatively bubbly environment, with the future, which might not be that same scenario? Is that like an investment thesis that you're incorporating moving forward? Is something that you're considering talking to with with retail investors as well? We are. We have a contrarian point of view here. We think the bigger risk in the next one to three years is deflation, not inflation. And it's both good and bad deflation. We're already seeing cyclical deflation in the pipeline. We've got commodity prices down 30, 40, even oil, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80%. And it's because China's in recession, Europe's effectively in recession, and we think the US is in recession. So you've got deflation coming in the pipeline and we have a massive inventory buildup that is actually shocking. Nike, for its recent quarter, reported that its sales were up 3% and its inventories were up 44%. In North America, its inventories were up 68%. And the inventory in transit is up 85%. This is going to overwhelm retailers And the only way they'll clear their shelves is to discount aggressively. We're already hearing Walmart, Target, uh, and others uh, talking about discounting. We think cyclically we've got deflation. And then secularly, meaning longer term, we believe we have deflation because of innovation. Now, that's good deflation. You cut the price of something. 
units will increase. So we think we're going to see some booms in categories of innovation. But at the same time, if we're right on that, there are a lot of products in the old world that are going to be obsolete and they'll have to cut prices. That's bad deflation. So we see deflation, frankly, all over the place. And the Fed right now is looking at two lagging indicators. It's looking at CPI inflation, and I just told you what's in the pipeline, and it's um, looking at employment. And uh, employment, I think what's happened there recently, companies had so much trouble hiring during COVID that they have decided to hoard labor. And even though business is, is kind of fraying at the edges, they're keeping their employees because they don't want to go through that again. If we're right on what this inventory glut is going to do to margins, we're probably going to see some deterioration in employment as well. So the Fed will pivot. We just saw a liquidity crisis in the UK. Pension funds, because the increase in interest rates has been so rapid, led by the Fed, pension funds were offsides in terms of their derivatives. And there was a run. There was a run, margin calls. This has happened just recently. And uh, that is a sign that there's a liquidity crisis brewing out there because interest rates have moved up too fast. We think the Fed has is now making a mistake. I think I think also that was partially a, a response to the fiscal package released by the United Kingdom government. Clayton, do you have additional thoughts on sort of uh, explaining macro to retail? I mean, you know, as someone who like my, my fresh my first semester at Penn was literally when Lehman was blowing up, and then there was like you know ten years of easy money and 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 you know low rates. I would say the last ten years were playing one note on the keyboard. I'm a piano player. Uh, the next 10 years are going to look much like more like playing a chord of keys. And so what we aim to do is have a diversified you know, balance across whether that sector is um, like we'll have a multi-asset class platform. Yeah, for some people th that are more risk tolerant and more long-term focused, they may still want to lean into alternatives in a big way. And that's that's the bet that we're making. But also, you know, energy, best performing sector of the year, I think this year, right? Who, who would have guessed? I mean, those that are bullish inflation would have guessed, but not many people are positioned that way. Uh, we happen to be positioned that way in a big way today. And I, I just think I just think balance is going to be the key. And for a generation of retail that's basically only been invested in a 10-year bull market, I think it would behoove them to try to understand the lay of the land and start to play chords instead of just one key. That's a wonderful line, chords instead of one key. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Leave your thoughts, comments, questions below. The full interview, as I mentioned, is at the FinTwit Summit. So go ahead and check that out. I mean, I think there's a lot to explore in terms of the idea of democratizing different aspects of the financial industry which is very, very gatekept, and you have to do it in a way that informs and protects investors. So thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me, and I'll talk to you all very soon. See you soon. Bye.